What's going on, everybody? What's happening? What's up? Free Me Podcast. Man, as you see, man, my subs have have really jumped up, man. I think I got, I think I broke into these people's um algorithm. So we'll see, man. So first and foremost, I want to give much love and praise to the people going through what they're going through down in Miami. Um, many blessings. Sending much love and spirits and thoughts of positivity down that way. Um, anybody else that is going through any any tragedy, any strife in their life, um, you can always just come here, man. This is good vibes, positive vibes. Um, we're gonna speak on love. We're gonna speak on how to get out of these these conditions that we put ourselves in. You know, so uh, today. I'm going to open a discussion, um, and I am going to uh, just give ideas, opinions, and such on this discussion. I am going to uh, just go through it, and and uh, you guys just watch with me. I added the link in the description, so please uh, click the link and like subscribe always subscribe to dr jordan so starting it up here I'm very pleased to welcome today one of my, one of the writers I, I admire um, for the content and for the quality of the prose itself. He's been compared to George Orwell, uh, which is high praise indeed, as one of England's, uh, as one of Great Britain's finest essayists. Uh, Dr. Anthony Daniels, better known by his pen name, Theodore Delrymple. He worked as a prison doctor and psychiatrist, retired in 2005, but worked all over the world and traveled. And he's written many books, um, some of which have had a rather profound cultural impact, including Life at the Bottom, The Worldview That Makes the Underclass, 2001, where he discusses what you might describe as the philosophy of poverty, our culture, what's left of it, the Mandarins and the Masses, 2005, not with a bang, but a whimper. The Politics and Culture of Decline, 2008. Spoiled Rotten, The Toxic Cult of Sentimentality, 2010. And The Terror of Existence with Catholic theologian Kenneth Francis in 2018. For The Spectator, he wrote a weekly column on his experiences as a prison doctor for 14 years. And those were later collected in various books. He wrote a weekly column for the British Medical Journal as well for six years discussing medicine and literature. His essays have appeared in the finest newspapers and magazines in the world, including The Times, The Spectator, and The Wall Street Journal. Welcome, and thank you very much for agreeing to talk with me. Well, thank you for asking me. I'm, I'm going to start by telling you how I found out about you. I, When I was working as a clinical psychologist, I had a... Uh, social worker as a client who 
an immigrant, second generation immigrant um, female who had been a rather radically leftist thinker in her youth and then spent 20 years in the social work trenches and was eventually hounded out of her profession, hounded out and bullied out of her profession by the radical leftists themselves. And she mentioned life at the bottom to me. And so I picked it up and read it. And I thought, I've never heard anyone state this so bluntly. And what, what struck me, I guess, was, was three things. Was the, your, apart from the quality of your writing and the content, um, your, the, the particularities of your experience. You said, for example, that you had dealt with poverty, with people who were in poverty in various places in the world, Africa, for example, and then in Great Britain, in the inner cities, in what you regard as the underclass, a, a permanent multi-generational uh, segment of society that are, in some sense, they've fallen out of the bottom of the culture, in your view. And but what you, you concentrated, you, you, you focused on the difference between that poverty and the poverty of absolute deprivation that you encountered in places like Africa. But then you added another twist to it, which was you made a very, very strong case that there was a philosophy in some sense, or maybe an anti-philosophy, but it boils down to the same thing, a worldview that constituted the essence of the poverty that you saw in Great Britain, which you also regarded in many, rega in many ways as more severe and less addressable than the poverty that you had seen in, in other, in the developing world, for example. So it was your combination of broad worldly experience, intense involvement with the underclass that so many people feel morally obliged to save in some sense, but actually never interact with, your experience as a psychiatrist, and then your willingness to put down these very critical and, and, and certainly political What's up, guys? Robbie here. If you want to learn how to make $1,000 a day on politically incorrect by virtually every measure, observations, which to me rang true, generally true, and which I hadn't encountered with any other thinker. Yes. Well, I didn't really start out with any uh, preconception, certainly not any political preconception. I just, uh, I just saw a lot of patience and... Uh, and the penny began to drop about uh, what their lives were like and what they expected from life. And Who did you see? Tell, tell everyone about, about the uh, well, nature of I, I worked in, uh, in a, an inner-city hospital. The inner-city hospital was um, right next door to the prison, and the main difference between these two great institutions was that there was far more violence in the hospital than uh, in the prison. But... Uh, uh, and I would work uh, in the morning in the hospital, and then I would go and work in the prison uh, in the afternoon, and <clears throat> and often at night and weekends as well. Um, so in the in the hospital, I saw maybe uh, something in the region of I didn't count exactly ten to fifteen thousand cases 
of attempted suicide or at least of suicidal gestures that varied from you know, real attempts at suicide to uh, attempts to bring, uh, uh, bring parents to heal, everything in between. Uh, but anyway, everyone, I, I examined them all, or when I say examined, I mean I spoke to them all, and of course they told me about uh, the life around them. So they told me about the about the uh, about the lives of people around them, and so in the end, I probably heard about the lives of maybe forty, fifty thousand people. Of course, re refracted through through these people's lenses. But nevertheless, uh, though it was a selected sample of people, it wasn't a small sample of people. And um, so obviously I, um, I began to draw some conclusions, see some generalizations, uh, which I didn't start with. I, so, and so we could talk about the selection for a minute. I mean, you, because you were working in the hospital and in the prison, you obviously saw people who were hospitalized or who were in prison. And so obviously there's a selection there, but you, your, your patients were drawn from lower socioeconomic strata, so they were poor and dispossessed, um, but comparatively speaking. But, and they had got into trouble of one form or another that was sufficiently damaging so that they ended up being brought to the attention of it's the, the same problem all over the world. The old, it's always the, the poor. damage that had been inflicted on them or prison authorities because of the damage that they inflicted on other people. So that's the selection. It would be poor people, relatively poor people who were also in trouble. And, yes. and you, you, you said you didn't start with political intent while you were a psychiatrist. Um, but, well, walk us through what you saw, if you would, and over and over, and, and what, what you started to conclude and why you started to communicate it. Well, uh, I, I'll deal with why I started to communicate uh, uh, it, uh, was that it was so terrible uh, that it would, uh, uh, that I would have found it very difficult to keep it to myself and remain sane. In fact, the, my predecessor in the job, I found uh, little bottles of vodka everywhere where he, he, he went, uh, because I think he had found it extremely difficult. It was very, very distressing. Once, for example, I kept a, a diary of what I saw every day, uh, rather than, rather than uh, mold it in a kind of literary fashion for articles, I just wrote down what I saw. And after a very short time, actually only a few days, I thought, I can't go on with this. First of all, no one would want to read it. It's just too terrible. So actually, things were worse than I described in my book. Uh, now, what I saw was a complete social, what seemed to me a so complete social breakdown. I mean, uh, there were almost no families in the sense of mother, father, and children. That was almost unknown in the area, practically unknown. If you asked 16-year-olds who their father is, they replied with things like, do you mean my father at the moment? Hmm. Or they would say, when I say, who is your father, they just say no. Well, I, when I went, I was listening to your book this morning, uh, Life at the Bottom, at 2.5 times normal speed. And it was quite the, I mean, I'd read it before, but I, I had forgotten 
what the it's an unending litany of complete calamity across every dimension you can possibly imagine and then you said you saw like 20,000 of people who were in dire suicidal straits in addition i i presume that you had patients other than those who were suicidal as well yes well mainly because i was working in a general it was a general hospital then I would see organic uh, patients with organic problems and a few others. People who'd been beaten by their partners? Oh, I saw uh, that that was standard, of course. I mean, I, I discovered that about 80% of the women uh, whom I saw had suffered violence at the hands of their one or more of their sexual partners. Well, we um, could dig in there. You tell this story that's really quite interesting. So you're... And, and very, what would you say, uh, libel, any discussion of it is libel to create controversy. So you, you talked about the women that you saw, the patients who chronically chose males who you could identify at a glance as extraordinarily likely to burst into violent, jealous rages and become physically violent. And you also point out that the markers for that were not precisely subtle. Comparing the men that you were looking at, I believe, to your neighbor's tomcat who had been in enough fights, so his head was a mass of shredded ears and scars and missing an eye. And so these were men who had shaved heads, multiple scars from battles, um, often tattooed, often tattooed on their fists with blatant messages of nihilism or or social rejection or anger or uh, or threats or oh, true. curse words. These are facts. Um, so these it wasn't are, exactly subtle. These and you said that they invariably wore a um, an expression of malign contempt, something like that, and. They were people you would obviously give wide berth to in the street in broad daylight. Yet they were in, invariably tangled up with a woman or two or three or ten who they were abusing serially. But and the the women seemed, um, in some sense, blind to this. But not only the underclass women that you were serving, but you also mentioned that that was extraordinarily prevalent among the nursing staff. And so. Walk us through that and tell us how you make sense of that. Well, it, it wasn't, a pre I wouldn't say it was prevalent amongst the nursing staff. It was okay. present, present in the nursing staff. Uh, well, my interpretation, which would be, of course, uh, regarded as highly reactionary, in the end, this is the conclusion I came to, was that because sexual relations had been freed from all... Um, contractual, cultural, um, economic uh, restraint and con constraint, then what was left was a kind of free-for-all. And the men uh, wanted exclusive sexual possession of somebody, but at the same time they wanted, exclusive, uh, they wanted complete sexual freedom. Now, these things don't go together very well. I mean, uh, if there's complete sexual freedom, okay, there's complete sexual freedom. But if at the same time you want possibly for reasons of boosting your self-image, the exclusive sexual possession of somebody, then, and everyone around you is the same, then the men would see other men as threats. 
So they would be, and they would become extremely jealous um, because they would fear any any uh, contact between their uh, their girlfriend, they were never wives, girlfriend with another man would lead to, a, or might lead to a liaison. And after all, since they were sexually predatory in, this, in that way, uh, they assumed that everyone around them uh, was, uh, was of similar ilk, uh, and which was often true. And this, this used to lead to fights, for example, in, um, in so-called nightclubs, which, uh, I mean, when I was young, a nightclub was a place where there was a floor show and little tables around, but these were great caverns of, of, of uh, thousands of people, where if one, where if a man looked at a girlfriend, it was assumed to be a challenge by the girlfriend's boyfriend, and, and so there could be fights and even murder. I mean, it, it I was a challenge with the New York Times because I pointed out at one one point during the discussion with this journalist that it depends societies all around you know, it all the depends world, on the look, you know, and I thought of this as a universal anthropological truth and something that was well established to the point of being self-evident, but apparently not that a major problem that every society faces is the con control of aggression by young men in particular and generally as a consequence of sexual jealousy and striving and the universal answer to that insofar as there is one was the development of monogamous norms and social enforcement of those norms and you know you you just described it in some sense as inhibition and control but i i think it's also useful and to think about it as integration and into a more sophisticated game. Um, you know, being in a, in a marriage obviously does involve not chasing after other people sexually, but it isn't all inhibitory. Within the marriage, something sophisticated and hopefully wonderful in the long term is supposed to occur as a preferable substitute and I mean preferable if it's done properly, to the short-term gratification that might be obtained by serial relationships, say, or sporadic relationships, because they're, they're actually very difficult, and they also produce these violent outcomes that you described. And I was pelloried for that in a, quite a remarkable way. Claims were made that, you know, I was <laughs> making the claim that governments should, you know, hand over unwilling women to undesirable monogamous men or undesirable <laughs> men just to enforce monogamy. But really what I meant was, well, the part, one of the reasons for marriage, apart from the fact that two, fam two parent families are clearly much better for children when the, with the father there, is that societies that allow unregulated polygamy or that degenerate into that are invariably rife with in extraordinarily high levels of violence. Yes, well, that's what I, I saw. Now, uh, of course, what the, the, the destruction of the idea of, uh, of the family as we once knew it has been a long process, started, I think, by intellectuals, literary intellectuals, 
And it's perfectly true that a bad marriage from which you can't escape is hell. I mean, it's a kind of concentrated <laughs> hell. Yes, it is, man. Um, Speak. And uh, marriage is not easy. It's um, not. Um, so people thought, well, I think this is this is my explanation. They thought that there were, if if we could get rid of all the inhibitions and restraints and frustrations, because there are frustrations, um, then the full beauty of the human personality would emerge, and we would associate with one another just by love and nothing else. And when love was over, then you just. Uh, you just uh, go on to something else, somebody, somebody else. But this is actually a very shallow view of things, apart from anything else. In a marriage, if a marriage, if there are difficulties in the way of ending a marriage, this gives you actual incentives to make it work. It also tells you that society values what you're doing, yeah. which helps you continue to value it, which makes you likely to stick, more likely to stick with it during periods of doubt. I mean, obviously, life is extraordinarily difficult and just on its own. And, and I, it's certainly no easier if you're alone, that's for sure. And so life is difficult when you have a partner. And because of that difficulty, but not because of anything necessarily intrinsic to the state of marriage itself, you need social institutions to buttress the structure so that all of the weight doesn't fall on those individuals alone. You know, I mean, I've had clients in my practice who are living together. And, you know, when I ask them why they don't get married, the man often will say, well, we don't need a piece of paper to signify oh, yeah. our commitment. And I think, first, I've heard that 20 times, and you might think that's a philosophy, but it's actually a pretty stunningly shallow cliche. And second, um, we're not talking about a piece of paper here. We're actually talking about something serious you stand up in front of your family your peers your friends the people that love you the people that you want to spend time with hypothetically for the rest of your life that you're going to depend on that are going to depend on you and you say look this is important i want you to recognize it we're now one thing we're going to give it our best shot and it would be nice if you support us and that's not trivial it's vital and, and that's p still why i think you marriage may be less frequent especially among the lower classes than it once was although cohabiting isn't or perhaps it is as well but um, romance movies that feature a wedding are certainly not any less popular and marriage is still just as popular among the upper classes which yes. is something you also discuss in books like uh, uh, the mandarins and the masses for example you're not very happy with these philosophical discussions of freedom conducted by people, say, like Jean-Paul Sartre, and the absolutely catastrophic consequences of that unbridled thinking on people who are at the bottom of the hierarchy. Yes. Well, with regard to the uh, piece of paper business, I remember I had a patient who had, uh, and she was not a, a foolish woman, had, had uh, take, uh, tried to kill herself, eventually, unfortunately, did kill herself, uh, she wanted very much a man to marry her. And uh, the man didn't want to marry her, but he wanted to cohabit with her. And I remember him saying to me, I don't see what 
what she's, uh, what she's worried about. It's only a piece of paper. And I said, well, if it's only a piece of paper, why don't you sign it? Because it's only a piece of paper either way. So obviously, this revealed that it wasn't only a piece of paper. It was a commitment which he was unwilling or for some reason uh, to make. He had to, he had personal... Well, there's also the, the, the question of, well, what what is the basis of your relationship if it isn't actually a, 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 a formally recognized permanent commitment? Say you're cohabiting with someone. Think in Canada, it's six months and it's basically common law marriage. So... What is it? Is we're going to hang around with each other until one of us finds someone better? But you'll do for now. Is that uh, like I don't know what? Well, the- I think yes. I think it's uh, it's uh, p- particularly with the men. I think they uh, they don't want to close off all possibilities. They think you see. They think that. Okay. Now this is something that I discuss a lot, right? And. I say a lot of the same things that that this gentleman just said, you know, uh, what what is really the relevance of it? Because it is it's just a piece of paper stating that this person is connected to this person and it's adjoined by law. And, you know, as far as as paperwork, taxes, um, so on and so forth. All that piece of paper is, is just a piece of paper. It's what you put into it. So my discussion is, why does that piece of paper need to be there, right? Why does that piece of paper need to be there when you can put the same emotions that you put into that paper, you can put it into the relationship? But the the paper, the, the, the certificate really signifies nothing other than that you took the steps necessary to prove your commitment. But we should be doing that in the relationship anyhow. You know, the certificate is not necessary in my eyes. They didn't have certificates thousands of years ago. They weren't writing on stone tablets. Well, maybe for record purposes, you know, and maybe this is what the certificate I'm sure has has a lot to do with as well as as record purposes but for me where it stands uh, record keeping is very important so I mean you know I I hear what they're saying but it, it for me I don't see it being what these gentlemen are describing it's not it's not a matter of of commitment for me um not that i've uncovered yet i'm not saying that it's not there and it's very well possible that that i mean these 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 gentlemen are obviously more scholarly than than i am you know but i think that i know my thoughts that doesn't mean i do a lot of times you know because i'm still uncovering these these facts about me you know these uncovered hidden uh lies that i've i've constantly told myself to protect myself so maybe this is one of those instances you know but as far as my my believing in in my decisions um 
to me it's it's not it's not relevant you know and to answer this gentleman's question you know why don't you just sign the piece of paper then I, I have no issues with that you know it's it's to me again it's if that's what makes the partner happy but when when I describe this when I say you know if, if that's what you want to do and that makes you happy I have no problems doing it we can do that but then the the rebuttal to that is but I don't want you to do it under that pretense I don't want you to do it because it makes me happy I want you to do it because this is how you feel and I can't get you know the the understanding in that I don't need that 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 material piece of paper to m to make me feel that way and I don't think that other people should feel that they need that certificate in order to prove their mate's love as well so I kind of disagree with what they're saying <clears throat> but again it, it's just me I mean what do I know it's uh, having an infinite choice is actually not committing to anything, uh, which of course is a mistake. And what do you think it is committing to? Which uh, the the in, the, in, the, con the continual the hypothetical continual choice. Uh, that is just uh, they hope to be able to um, to continue a life of uh, pleasure and um, and sensation. No, I think that that's, that's about it. Not for um, me. And they don't want to. Uh, they have a kind of anti-romantic idea um, of um, um, of love. So, do you think that the intellectuals no. that were actively engaged in the destruction of traditional structures or in the criticism of traditional structures were just so well protected? by the fact of those structures that they were only able to see the residual problems? I think that, that was it, yes. And, of course, they were also protected economically because economics does make a big difference here. Uh, I mean, it's, it, uh, I know that the, in, in practice, the upper classes, uh, at least uh, they preserve their hypocrisy. If they, if they break the rules, they at least pretend not to be breaking the, or try to pretend not to be breaking the rules on the whole. Um, but they are protected from consequences of breakdown to some extent. That's definitely Completely, true. of course, because there's an emotional aspect. But, but money does make a big difference. But if you have no money, and you have no support, or the only support you have is a rather miserable support of the state, uh, then uh, the consequences are absolutely terrible. And um, and I, you know, I saw hundreds and thousands of cases. So there's increasing support in the EU, for example, for schemes such as a universal basic income. And, you know, you just made an argument that at least from one perspective, could be viewed as supportive of a scheme like that, given that if you have a dearth of material resources, a dearth of money, you're much more vulnerable to catastrophe. And so you might think, well, if we grant people a minimum basic income, that eradicates that problem. But you also tie the 
degeneration that you saw, which I want to talk about more, um, to the rise of the welfare state. And so, and one of the things that, and I think this is because of my clinical experience, and it isn't clear to me that giving people money actually solves the problem of poverty. It, it, because poverty is very much more complex than the mere lack of money, even though that's certainly a cardinal element of poverty. Mm. Um, and that's the other thing I would say, or another thing that you pushed at constantly in your writings, is that there's an entire worldview that is associated with violent and catastrophic poverty. And that's not precisely an economic issue, even though economic issues might exaggerate its danger. So tell us some stories and, and, and tell us what you concluded from, from what you watched. Well, I concluded that we had created quite a lot of people who had nothing to hope for and nothing to fear, conceive of a life different from uh, the life they had. Going to work wouldn't make much difference to them economically, as failing to go to work would uh, uh, not make much difference to them. This isn't actually necess a necessary aspect of the of the welfare state. After all, Britain was far worse in this res in these respects than um, other countries which have welfare states. In some cases, more generous than the British welfare state. But it, but the British welfare state uh, created people a class of people who were uh, permanently in this condition uh, and had no real incentive to get out of it. Um, so um, this created a kind of... It created sometimes a lassitude, but it was also dishonest. It created a kind of dishonesty because actually the more problems they made for themselves... Uh, the more they were rewarded. I remember uh, we had a peculiar demoralization of the world. I don't mean, uh, I mean actual re removal of morality from all human consideration. I remember once I had a patient with um, uh, multiple sclerosis. And her husband worked, but he didn't earn a lot of money. And she had multiple sclerosis, which was clearly not her fault. And they needed some adjustments to their house so that she could get out of the house more easily and so on. And it seemed to me this, as far as I'm concerned, that's a perfectly good way to... Well, this is a place where the, where the welfare state could actually help. So I phoned a social worker, and I, I made a great mistake. I said, I have a particularly deserving case. Oh, yes. And there was a stony silence on the other end. And then she said that all cases were deserving. In other words, you couldn't distinguish between this case of need, which was just one of those things, it was nobody's fault. And someone who took drugs set fire to his house in a state of intoxication. There was no, there was no difference. 
And since, of course, people who behave badly become more needy, they actually gain more attention and more sympathy. That's if you, if you take dessert away, if you remove dessert from all uh, considerations. And this means that actually one source of meaning in life is completely removed. And what we saw were these people who had well, no religion. Even, that's the case you're making. It's not even just removed. It's actually punished, actively well, punished. Yeah. which is even worse than mere removal. Yeah. So, and, and you kind of claim, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there's a perverse attractiveness of that to the educated helping classes in producing a group of people um, who are so much beneath them in some sense that normal moral standards don't, don't anymore apply. And what that means, I mean, if that's the case, that perverse sense of superiority and the moral gratification that might provide if that's the case then people are being actively punished for doing anything that might lift them out of the circumstances that they find themselves in yeah well i think one of the things that's um that is clear about the shall i say the intellectual classes is one of their greatest fears is the fear of being considered censorious and of course, censoriousness is not a very attractive quality. So, uh, and the, the but the best way to avoid being considered censorious is to fail to make any judgment whatever. But this is this is completely impossible. It's impossible to uh, not to to to, um, to make judgments. Judgment is part of being human. Um, yeah, well, you can't perceive without judging because you have to select the thing you should be exactly. looking at from everything else you might be looking at. So every act is hierarchical and implies a value structure. And a choice. I mean, choice imposes the necessity to make judgments. Now, if you pretend that you are not making judgments, then you are actually facilitating the worst judgments. So, uh, but as I said, I think the, the intellectuals... Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I, I have this fear myself. When I wrote, I thought, is anyone going to think you are an unfeeling, censorious mm -hmm. person? Mm -hmm. Because you, I mean, after all, I'm comparatively fortunate. Here I am coming into the lives of people who, who are unfortunate. Many of them are unfortunate. There's no question about that. Many of them, you know, they're, they're born in a... a low social class they've been given of an extremely bad education although it's actually quite a costly education but it's extremely bad uh, and so on and so forth and here i am coming uh, in and making making judgment saying your behavior uh, is what is causing your unhappiness uh, is at the is at the root of your unhappiness and actually, I tried to demedicalize a lot of their unhappiness because um, I, I didn't think their unhappiness was a medical condition. Hmm. Um, so, uh, well, that is the danger with judgment. I mean, I face this with my clinical clients constantly, but also in the case of my daughter and in my own life, for that matter. If you're dealing with someone who's ill, it's very difficult to 
um, encourage and it's very difficult to discipline and by that I mean encourage and instill discipline which is something that you want to do if you're a parent if your child is ill you it's very difficult to tell when the illness is sufficient reason so that something isn't being done right and so when you're dealing with dispossessed people you have the same problem yeah well judgment is always fallible so I would never say that I had never made any mistakes in my judgment. You know, sometimes I would be too harsh, maybe, and sometimes I wouldn't be hard enough. Mm -hmm. But the, I, but the, uh, I mean, that's just a consequence of um, not having enough knowledge and so on and so forth. But to pretend you're not making a judgment is itself. A judgment. I mean, you're judging that it's that you shouldn't make judgments. It's also the abdication of responsibility. I mean, I thought this through with my clinical clients at a sort of a technical level too. I I learned a lot from reading Carl Rogers, and I would say a certain amount of unthinking sentimentality can be laid at his feet in the clinical and social work world. Partly because he proposed that unconditional positive regard for his clients was the appropriate pathway forward and his critics pointed out that if you watched Carl Rogers in action what he was practicing involved careful discrimination uh, but what he meant was something like accept that the person is of fundamental value and has the capacity to move towards the light, let's say, and work in that vein. But what, what I would tell my clients, and this was a consequence of my, real, my realization that judgment was not only necessary but crucially important to forward movement, was that I'm not offering you unconditional positive regard. I'm on the side of the part of you that wants things to be better. And... I'm going to help you discriminate between the part of you that doesn't want things to be better, that might even want them to be actively worse for all sorts of reasons that all people are prey to, and the part of you that is striving to make everything better. And we'll discuss what better means, and we'll negotiate the strategies, but let's make it clear this enterprise is to get rid of what is undesirable and to foster what is desirable and to critically distinguish between those two which is absolutely vital you can throw your hands up and say i'm not going to be judgmental but all that that means you're not distinguishing between what's good and what isn't well i think the what i was uh, what i tried to get at was uh, with patients was our if you if you like our existential uh, equality that uh, i made choices but they made choices too and, and of course there were there are conditions where where that is not so and you have to make the distinction between those cases where people really do not have any capability i mean there are such cases of course but in the prison for example one thing that made me a little bit optimistic was that i never said anything in my articles that i didn't actually say to the patients and the patients understood on the whole, I mean, there were a few in the prison who I think were uh, not reachable by this kind of argumentation. But, for example, I would not, I, in the prison, I said I would not allow the prisoners 
to swear in front of me. And um, I had no means of stopping them, of course, and if they continued, I couldn't refuse to treat them on the grounds that they had sworn in front of me, but I did actually stop them. And I, I mean... Uh, so why do you think they stopped? Ah, well, I, I, provided, I, I provided an argument. Let me tell you why I'm trying to stop before he starts. So... I started to listen to other people swearing and I have family members that every other word is a swear word. And and as I started to, to change, it just started to sound ignorant to me. You know, it just started to sound uneducated and I didn't want to sound like that. I didn't want to, to constantly be swearing because I didn't know what my next word was going to be or, uh, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, a swear word, I, I do swear, um, but it's more of an emphasis of a situation. It's not a filler in conversations. That's the difference, you know, and, and I really want to get to a point to where I don't swear at all. I really want to get to a point to where I, I speak no negative at all. That's, that's where I want to be at. You know, so um, let's hear why he says. I, I don't know whether one is allowed to use bad language on your podcast. You're, you can, anything you have to say that you think is necessary, you're free to say. Amen, Mr. <laughs> okay. Jordan. Well, the patient would, uh, in the prison would come in and say, I've got this fucking headache. So I would say, well, before we go any further, can you tell me the difference between a headache and a fucking headache? <laughs> Tell me the difference. The, the level of severity. And he would say, well, that's how I speak. And mm. I say, yes, that's what I'm complaining of. <laughs> now, see, for me, is I mean, if I have a headache, like, man, I got a headache, it's okay. It's, it's, I have a headache. But if I'm like, man, I have a fucking headache, man, it's because my head is pounding. And I'm, like, at the end of the straw with it. You know what I mean? So... Uh, and uh, he said, well, why shouldn't I? Why shouldn't I speak like this? Because that's me, you know. And I said, well, supposing at the end of this consultation, I say to you, now, here's some fucking pills. Take two of the fuckingers every four fucking hours. And if they don't fucking work, fucking come back and I'll give you some other fuckers. <laughs> you, you find this a bit strange, wouldn't you? I mean, that's my family. That's so, how I grew up. So he said, yes. So I said, well, we're, we're equal. I don't talk to you like that, and you don't talk to me like that. And they just stopped. And you meant that? What? That you meant that? Oh, I meant that, yes. Yeah, right. Well, that, so, you know, so... Um, and they are commenting. We have You're respect. commenting your client instantly. You're saying, look, you know, we're engaged in a serious enterprise here, and I actually care about it, and maybe we should attend to the words we're using. You too, or we're just playing. And I actually care about you getting better. So how about we watch our language? I'll do it, you do it, and, and you know, you can do it. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, people yeah. are going to agree to well, that. Used to, I, mean, listen, I, I used, agree. I used to have a good laugh sometimes. <laughs> I remember the law was that every prisoner had to be examined medically within 24 hours of being received into the prison. And in practice, it was usually within two hours of being received in the prison. And I used to do these, um, 
I used to do these uh, 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 examinations and one prisoner said he wanted his medicine and I didn't think he should have what he was, he alleged he was taking. I had no idea whether he was taking it or not. And I said, I see no medical in indication for him. And he started screaming. He said, uh, you murderer. He said, you're, 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 you're a murderer. You're not a doctor, you're a murderer. And of course, this was a Victorian prison. I used to hear that every day in Pilla. Uh, with ironwork <laughs> and everything. So it was echoing all through this enormous building. <laughs> and uh, anyway, in the end, I said, well, that's enough. You have to go now. And um, so he went and uh, screaming still. And, uh, all, and then the next day I saw him and he came up to me and he, he apologized. And, um, and he said, I was, uh, I was bang out of order. That was his expression. I was bang out of order. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, doctor. I said, oh, never mind. I said, I've been called far worse than that. And, uh, and then, then I said, and actually, you you uh, had a wonderful effect on the other prisoners who I whom I was examining, because they were like lambs when they came in. And and, uh, and I said, you couldn't come and do it again this evening, could you? <laughs> come in and call me a murderer. So we had a good laugh, um, and. Uh, but on the other hand, of course, what I was saying is that you can control yourself. It's not... Uh, well, that's, and that's a compliment. Yeah. It's a compliment. And it might be the first time that some of these people had been complimented in that way. This well, yes, true. I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I think that services have been set up to make them the victims of their own lives and behavior. Amen. So that, that's how they presented themselves. And I remember another, another person who came in and said, uh, yeah, now he had, he'd been uh, in prison several times for burglary and such are the British police that really you have to be want to be caught, to, to be caught by the British police for burglary. But anyway, um, he said to me, Doctor, do you think, do you think my uh, burgling got anything do you think it's my childhood that caused me to burgle do you think it's, it's got something to do with my childhood so i said absolutely nothing whatever and, uh, and he said uh, what because he expected me to say it must be and uh, then i said so, so, so why do i do it i said well it's quite simple you're lazy and stupid and you're not prepared to work for what it is that you want and he laughed instead of being very angry he laughed and, uh, and uh, because he knew that what he was saying was nonsense um and then after that we could talk about his childhood because it was true that his childhood was a bad one and most of the prisoners have a very bad uh, childhood many of them had very bad childhood that that was all true but it's not true that everyone who has a bad childhood is a burglar right just as it's not true that everyone who's sexually molested grows up to be a molester even though many molesters were molested yes yeah yeah right so uh, there, there were lots of other uh, cases like that i remember <clears throat> a chap came to me I mean, prisoners were said to be of low intelligence, 
on average, lower than average intelligence. All I can say is that I never found them incapable of understanding what I was saying. Now, maybe what I'm saying isn't very intelligent, so it's easy for unintelligent people to understand it. But nevertheless, I found that they could actually follow quite complicated arguments. I'll give you an example. There is also isn't a clear relationship between IQ and antisocial behavior. Mm. Uh, partly, it's complicated, too, because many prisoners have histories of head trauma, often from violence and from child abuse and, and damage from alcoholism and so on. But I know, I know the literature on antisocial behavior. We looked at predictors for years and even neuropsychological tests that assess prefrontal function, for example, which is hypothetically the seat of inhibition or higher order cognition. The predictive power of, of cognitive ability in relationship to criminality is really quite low. And, and yeah. IQ is completely uncorrelated with conscientiousness, which is a personality yeah. factor, and with well, agreeableness. So, yeah, so well, I, not I, obvious I, that criminals are stupid. Yeah, no, I, Thank I, you. I, I never found. Thank I you, Doctor Never Jordan. found that. And for example, there was a, a came to me and said, "You have to give me something because um, if you don't give me something, I'm going to go and attack a, a, a child sex offender." in the prison that actually they were generally they were kept apart uh, because they would be immediately attacked but anyway he said I, I i i'm going to kill one if i if i get hold of one if you don't do something and i said well let's think about this he said well why do you feel like that and he said well because they interfere with kiddies uh, with children and you know, so i took a bit of a, a risk i said do you have any children and uh he said, uh, yes, three. I said, how many mothers? And he said, well, three. I said, uh, and um, these mothers, do they have uh, boyfriends? And, uh, and uh, they said, yes. And I said, one or perhaps more? Have they had more than one? Okay. I know where he's going with this, right? And... You know, at the end of the day, he's he's right, and and this is some of the transition that I had to go through and and understand because, um, what he what he's talking about is is facts, is true. You know, uh, a child molester, a pedophile, was um. They're they're punching bags for a lot of people, to release anger and stress out of. Um, and at first I didn't realize that, you know, going back to what I said earlier, you know, I, I, you know, I only know what I know presently, right? But that doesn't mean that that's what I know eternally. So in the, in the acts of doing what I was doing, right, it was, I was telling myself, that I was doing it in the name of protecting children and I was doing it in the name of protecting society like I was some big champion but at the end of the day I was just releasing anger and taking my own frustrations out on them and it was allowed so you know it happened and it wasn't until I started realizing exactly what this gentleman is saying. I put my own children 
in 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 danger's way you know i should be upset with myself this is why i tell you you know when these things um come to me this is why i tell you like during my transition when when i when i hit bottom and i decided i wanted to change that day in the cell that i was physically abusing myself and that was because i've i've physically abused other people out of anger and and i deserve that as well i deserve to, to beat my own ass you know what i mean and and that's just how i felt that day like i deserve just to kick the ever-living shit out of myself you know but that was the the mental traumatic state that i was i was in on that day i was just so angry and so tired of the present me and i just wanted to abolish it you know instantly so um with, with the i mean you know these these guys are spot on you know um someone and i say yes i said well um is it likely that one or more of these boyfriends has sexually interfered with one of your children mm. and he immediately got the point and and he, i said well you're not a, a sec you haven't interfered sexually with children yourself but you facilitated such you've mm. created the conditions in which such behavior is likely to occur now it's too late you can't do anything about it now it's too late but you can make sure that you don't do anything to further it in the future and he went out he, there was no more talk about uh, killing uh, uh, sex abuse why and why do you think you got away with that got why away with work? well you said you said you took a risk right so you well, I took a, a risk. I, I, well, I took a risk. Uh, I mean, it was a risk that I didn't know that he had children. I didn't know what. He, I mean, I had a fair idea because it was a, it was so common amongst prisoners, uh, sure. and, and and outside prison. I but it's know. all it's also a risk. I mean, the risk you took. He asked you to do something because he was going to become murderous, and so that's a pretty. Uh, uh, salient, immediate, and credible threat, given that a violent criminal uttered it in a prison. Yes. And your response wasn't, I better prescribe him a sedative, at least to cover myself up, let's say, if anything does happen. Your response was, well, let's call this guy out for his uh, rather self-evident moral flaws, blind ignorance of which is facilitating an unearned sense of homicidal moral superiority and let's assume that that's going to be curative that's a risk yeah it, it, it it's a risk and i must say that uh, when i had and i had lots of quite a few patients who said similar things uh and i didn't give in to what was in essence moral blackmail but of course, it did always occur to me that maybe one day one of these people who was threatening something like that might actually uh, commit the act, uh, and then someone might blame me. I mean, yes, that, definitely. That right. ne that never happened. That that never happened. Um, but I was, I'm quite. I was fairly clear that. Their responsibility, their responsibility was not to behave like that. And um, 
and he didn't, in my opinion, as far as I could tell, suffer from anything which, uh, which would have excused him. Right, some, some organic impulse control disorder, or some prefrontal yeah. damage. Yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, those things do occur. Yeah. A certain percentage of violent criminals have um, rage that's induced by epilepsy, and that yeah. can be triggered by drinking. And I yeah. mean, there are organic syndromes that mimic virtually every moral failing. Yeah, if he had a, a psycho psychosis, for example, I mean, if he had a psychosis, I, I wouldn't, of course, I wouldn't have said what I said. Um, uh, my sense in, in reading your books like, is, so there is this censoriousness, or th that's something you could be criticized about uh, uh, for, and I, I'm sure, and, and you can tell me about that, I'm sure you have been criticized for that. Um, and, you know, you, you, you've written provocative tracts like the toxic cult of sentimentality which is a real dagger in some sense i mean because people let's not call it sentimentality for a moment let's call it empathy or sympathy and you make a case that i think and correct me if i'm wrong that excessive empathy unthinking sympathy is has has uh, can produce catastrophic consequences because it's not tempered by judgment and and then i look at the personality literature you know we have two moral personality traits roughly speaking uh, one is agreeableness and so people who are high in agreeableness are empathetic and sympathetic and self-sacrificing and perhaps resentful because of it so it's not an untrammeled virtue whereas the disagreeable types are more likely to be imprisoned um, so that's a predictor of of, of antisocial behavior but they're they're implacable and stubborn and hard to push around. And so people vary on that distribution. Um, I think agreeableness is a, the empathy dimension is a trait that's particularly good for fostering the care of infants. Because infants, immediate empathy with an infant under six to nine months is almost invariably the right response. If the infant is crying or in distress, your job isn't to question or judge, it's to alleviate the source of the trouble. Right. And it's very hard to take care of infants, and it's no wonder that there's a moral virtue that's essentially devoted to the care of um, true dependence. But we have conscientiousness, too. And conscientiousness is the best predictor of long-term life success, apart from IQ. And conscientious people are good at... Um, keep formulating and keeping contracts long-term contracts it's sort of a cold virtue and they are judgmental but as far as i'm concerned we wouldn't have both these personality traits like they're two of five so it's not like it's a trivial proportion of the variation in personality we wouldn't have two of our five personality traits um aimed at regulating our behavior if empathy alone was sufficient and so you go after it, the toxic cult of sentimentality. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean the, uh, if, if you like, the, the, uh, the infantilization of, of people who are expressing emotion. So uh, we accept now that, uh, I mean, there's the, if, someone, uh, if someone expresses distress, uh, we don't inquire where that distress comes from how it arose. We just simply tried to alleviate it. Um, Oscar Wilde, of course, said that sentimentality is the uh, desire to have the emotion without the uh, 
without the cost of the emotion. Um, I, I suppose sentimentality is to uh, is uh, is to empathy what kitsch is to art. Um, and so what would you regard okay so let, let's you let, well, get, 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 uh, i'll give you an i mean i start the book with an example yep. which i read in my local newspaper which was of a man who bought a chicken in a supermarket uh, and roasted it or and then uh, gave it to, to you know they were eating their dinner and the girl uh, the little girl finds that there are chickens feet in it and screams with horror and so the father the, the child is so horrified quick note i used to find chicken's feet every so often at least once a month in my because every wednesday you get chicken it's chicken wednesday and there would be a big ass chicken claw sitting right on my tray still attached to the to the damn chicken man so it is pretty horrifying man let me tell you five that the father says, I don't know whether this is what he did literally, but I had to throw it out of the window. So he just took the emotion of the child and said, I have to assuage that emotion any way I can, and the quickest way is the best, because, of course, she would have less emotion if it's dealt with quickly. So there's no... There's no rational, there's no attempt to argue rationally about, uh, about this, that actually chickens do have feet, that <laughs> they were live creatures once, and this is something that children have to learn. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that children have to know. And mm -hmm. so what's the problem with reflexive empathy exactly? What, well, it's what? not exactly empathy, actually. Okay, okay. I, I think it's not genuine well, empathy. Well, then we, we should define em genuine empathy. We should define genuine empathy and distinguish it from counterproductive sentimentality. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, it's not, it's not easy, of course. No, uh, fair enough. I, I know I'm, <laughs> I, I'm putting you on the spot in this. I'm saying that that's something that could be productively attempted. Yes, I'm not sure I have the complete answer to that. Uh, well, you, because... you, 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 you're, you're hitting at it from all sorts of different directions, though. You know, like one of the things that, that emerges from your book, and, and you know, I, I saw you as someone who wanted genuinely to be of help to the people that you were seeing and tortured by this constant immersion that you had in absolute bloody nightmarish catastrophe like to a degree that I don't really understand how you managed, outraged by what you saw, outraged by the thoughtless contribution of skeptical and critical intellectuals to this suffering, which is swept under the table in some sense or, or attributed only to, you know, the power-hungry depredations of capitalism or something like that. And yeah. so you're outraged by that, and you're trying to use your capacity for judgment to help your clients, your patients, distinguish between those things that they're doing that clearly hurt them and those things that help them, and also to attribute to them the capacity to do that, which, like, I was talking to my wife today. She, we were talking about uh, a woman she's dealing with who is having a hard time disciplining her one-and-a-half-year-old, and, you know, I mentioned to her that 
one of the things I've seen among especially my seriously affected clinical clients is that they actually have no idea that they could change their behavior in a manner that would improve the future. Mm. That as a concept, that's not part of the subculture that they're embedded in. And mm -hmm. no. it's so counterproductive and unhelpful. Just hinting but, uh, at that's helpful. We, we also, of course, give them incentives not to think like that. Amen. Because uh, if you have a, if agenda, in fact, you have a situation in which uh, changing their behavior will not improve that certainly their economic situation very much, um, which is actually the condition with the situation of many of my patients that takes away one of the possible incentives for changing behavior. And, and why is it that that finding gainful employment, for example, isn't going to produce a material change in circumstances. Why, how is it that the system, at the level of detail? Because you, uh, many people, if they go to work, uh, they lose benefits. They have to start paying for things which were previously paid for them. So they end up going to work uh, for X number of hours and being uh, very slightly uh, better off in monetary terms, which doesn't seem to them to be worth it. And I can understand that. Yeah. So you're asking them to do low-level job, get up maybe at 6 o'clock in the morning. 40, 50 hours for minimum wage, you know, $10 an hour, things of that nature, where your whole time is consumed, your whole day is consumed with a job that is just barely paying your bills. This is this is what he's saying. So there's no room for advancement. You can never save no money. It, you know, you by the time you're able to save two or three hundred dollars, something tragic happens in your life that, of course, these days cost more than two or three hundred dollars. And now you you're 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 swamped with loners and 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 all such to to give you money to handle your problem. But now you're you're getting that much more indebted. So, again, spot on, man. And furthermore, of course, it's not good for their children because often they are single parents, so they've got no support at home. Other you're than passing debt down to your children, whatever it is that the state provides them, and uh, they ha so they have to manage their children and going to work when it's it's very difficult for them. Right for no for no economic incentive for for well I mean they are marginally better mm -hmm, off. Mm -hmm. Well, but maybe it's... maybe they have to buy clothes. There's, it's expensive to work you, you, yes. to enter the workforce. It's not yes. trivial. Yes. Uh, they have to arrange Break it transportation. Down, that's also an expense. And then you said childcare. That's a devastating expense because yes, most yeah. people who would work on the margins don't make enough money to afford childcare at no. all, let alone childcare of any quality. Yeah. And so, so it also means that this, in a, this unwilling, let's say, on the part of helpers, um, also means that we're we abdicate our responsibility to design social welfare systems that would reward productive behavior because we don't want to make the judgments about what behaviors are productive and what aren't. At least partly because we don't want to make mistakes and throw people out that are deserving, but we can't differentiate. But then, because we won't make those judgments, we produce systems that counterproductively reward the kinds of behaviors that produce the problems we want to solve. They treat everybody as helpless and uh, 
and it's a kind of learned helplessness actually and if you look at i mean it's very interesting to see the the success the economic success of uh, certain groups of poor immigrants for example the sikhs uh, in britain uh, and i'm sure and, and certainly in canada uh, they may come with nothing, but within a very short time, they've succeeded. They've they've uh, risen up the social scale, the social and economic scale. Now you see that with first generation Asian immigrants in North America. So yeah. I looked into that in detail because because it, it's a very interesting phenomenon. I was interested in the relationship between IQ and conscientiousness, IQ and personality in predicting long term life outcomes, and by and large people with higher IQs do substantially better. So if you had to pick one attribute Makes to sense. ensure your success at birth, it would be high intelligence. It's, it's better to be born three standard deviations above the mean in IQ than three standard deviations above the mean in wealth in terms of your position at 40, so 40 years later. So IQ is very powerful. Conscientiousness yeah, no is also powerful, but only about a third as much. But it's still powerful enough so that Asian immigrants, their, for their children, um, perform on average um, as well as native-born Caucasians who have a 15 IQ point advantage, which is roughly the difference between a college student and a high school student. And yeah. so there's something in the Asian culture, and what it is is quite clear, actually. Mm. It's, it's, uh, um, it's uh, an incredibly intense work ethic and respect for Achievement, he said Asia, I say China. Disciplined achievement in the economic realm. That's hammered in right from now. There. That disappears after about two generations. Yes, but, but presumably also there's the maintenance of the family structure. So that, uh, I mean, you don't, certainly where I was anyway, you didn't get this, uh, this complete breakdown. I mean, I never met, uh, I never met, uh, children of Indian immigrants who didn't know who their father was. Oh, right, right. Well, and th that's an interesting phenomenon, too. Um, I went to a talk at one point at the university five or six years ago, and uh, a feminist was speaking, uh, or a former feminist, maybe still, maybe a real feminist now. Her name was Janice Fiamengo, and she had been a radical leftist feminist and was in the English literature department and, and eventually realized that what she was involved in was a uh, an academic scam fundamentally and, and turned into quite a vocal critic of that particular perspective, postmodern, say, neo-Marxist perspective. She mentioned to the audience that uh, families with intact families with fathers, the children in those families do much better on virtually every measure you can possibly imagine. And in my naivety at that point, I thought, well, that's going to be an incontrovertible uh, hmm. statement because all you have to do is be remotely familiar with the childhood development literature and you figure that out right away. Amen. And yet it was as if she dropped a live snake into the audience because, and this is, this is that toxic sentimentality that you were talking about, say, well, look, there are obviously struggling single parents who are struggling for no fault of their own, a perfectly credible job of raising high-performing children. And then if you say, well, the two-parent family is more desirable, by implication, you're denigrating that accomplishment, let's say. But, and, and fair enough, there is a real tension there. And, 
and the, there are exceptions to the rule, but it's still the case that if you were trying to design public policy that was a benefit to children, you would design public policy that would reward people for long-term monogamous relationships where one of the par one of the participants was male. Yeah. Well, but you need to use judgment for that. Yes. But if you look at, uh, <clears throat> I mean, if you look at uh, literature, for example, there has been a consistent attack on that on that view um, for many many years, going back. Uh, for example, the Fabians and, and so on. And, uh, and what happens is that people use marginal cases uh, as being central. So, uh, and as I've already said, the, it, it's undoubtedly true that many marriages were oppressive um, and that being in, a, in an unhappy uh, marriage uh, is a horrible experience. Is a terrible experience. It's a long form of torture. Amen. But uh, people then thought that there was a perfect solution to this problem. There's a perfect solution to human relationships, and there is no perfect relationship, uh, perfect uh, solution. There's only better and worse. And whatever, whatever. <laughs> Um, uh, form of human relationships you're going to have, there are going to be terrible ones, but you, as far as I could see, and I had no real, no real opinion about this until I actually immersed myself in the world in which I did immerse myself, it's quite clear to me that without, uh, without a formal structure of relationships, things are absolutely terrible for for very large numbers of people. Now, of course, it's perfectly true that I, I saw, if you like, only the failed cases. Or, but there may but have the been. The question many. then would be: Well, where would you find the successful cases? Because let's think this through. Because it's 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 crucial point. You know, okay. So you have a biased sample, and maybe you approach this from an ethically conservative perspective, and so that produces your viewpoint, and it bears little relationship to the real world, but. Let's look for the counterexample. So, well, first of all, you can't look among the high-functioning middle to upper classes for counterexamples because they're all married. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so, so then you think, well, is are there they? a subset of people who are poor who are flourishing in their serial relationships, in their fragmented serial relationships? And, well, first of all, probably not because they're poor, right? By definition, you've already excluded the middle and upper class. So I'm kind of curious about... Well, I, I mean, I tried to think, I, I thought, well, how is someone living in these circumstances supposed to get out of, out of this situation? Right. What would look like a viable, practical alternative that would be better? That, yes, but that didn't involve changing the way they made their relationships or, or pursued their relationships. So they have to do, we have to keep the relationship, the, the, uh, the structure of the relationships the same. What can they, what else can they do that would make their lives better? And I just couldn't see how their lives could get better while you have this kind of, um, this kind of free-for-all 
it wasn't really free for all, it was free for some. <laughs> and um, so That's I came cool. to the conclusion that, that it, was a, it was a social and cultural disaster. Well, so let's, we could look at the fantasies of sexual libertinism, let's say. And yes. I think a good place to look, and, you know, I might be way off base here, but whatever, I'm going to forge forward. Let's look at uh, Playboy, because Playboy was the first mass market magazine that sort of introduced the idea of sophisticated sexual freedom into the mass audience. Right, and that quickly degenerated into Penthouse and Hustler and then to this bloody online catastrophe where everything goes and, and it, it's a cesspit of unimaginable proportion. But in any case, back Amen. to Playboy. Um, well, you know, you have two sophisticated people. The woman's in her early 20s. Uh, the guy's maybe five years older than that. They both have a glass of you know, nicely aged wine. They're sitting in a 50s living room that's sophisticated, discussing literature, and they're both free to make their choices, and, and so they have sex. And, and then maybe your life is an unending sequence of those perfect dates. It's like, well, what are the preconditions for that, for that even to be possible? Well, you both have to be young. You both have to be attractive. You both have to be healthy. You both have to be rich. You both have to be educated. In all likelihood, so that you're not rife with psychopathology, um, so that that can be an enjoyable and civilized evening, let's say, well, you have to have come from a pretty stable family, probably one with mother and father intact, and, and certainly not characterized by co the constant unwanted serial switching of partners. I mean, it's virtually unattainable, except in an unbelievably protected environment. But you're in that environment, and you think, well, I could, maybe you're in a marriage and you're unhappy, you have all those attributes. You think, well, I could jump out of that into this fantasy. And yeah. everyone could share the fantasy, but well, no, they couldn't. It's not yeah. possible. But it, uh, I mean, actually what people are really doing, and I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the most important figures in, um, in modern cultural history is Marie Antoinette, who uh, played shepherdess. Mm. who went out and thought it would be nice to be a shepherdess and went out to be a shepherdess for the day, but then always returned to her palace. And that this is what these people are doing because probably they give up that life at some point. The, the people, that you, the rich uh, people you've described, and they actually settle down, more or less. Oh, well, in very, yeah. if they don't, they're not happy about it. Yes. Right. If, if they don't, it's because they failed to get what they're actually aiming Incidentally, for. Uh, one interesting thing was that uh, I would talk to uh, um, mothers, uh, single mothers, about what they wanted for their daughters. And what they wanted for their daughters was for them to find a nice man who would have a good job <laughs> uh, and would treat them decently. And uh, they'd buy a house and so on and so forth. So, but they had no idea how to, do uh, to encourage them. Right, they have no what? idea what the micro-elements are. No, yeah. not, none whatever. In, you see no. this in illiterate families too, is that if you ask them, do you want your children to be educated? They say yes, but, if, but there's no books in the house, mm -hmm. and yeah. they don't know where to buy a book, and they're intimidated by books, and if they have a book, they don't know how to read it to their child. Mm -hmm. You know, and you get these huge differences 
at by the age of three between children in literate and non-literate households the the three-year-olds in literate households might have been exposed to you know a thousand hours worth of books by the time they're three they can already sit in a child in, in a house like that you give them a book they know what it is they'll sit there and mime the action of reading they go through the pages they point at the pictures they have all these pre-literate behaviors built in that that's the necessary scaffold for the development of literacy and there's micro habits that 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 are invisible if you're in that culture they're invisible because they're just part of how you live like the fact that you have a bookshelf like the fact that your relatives buy your children books if and if you don't know how to do that at all the barriers to entry are unbelievably unforgiving mm-hmm. yes and probably also uh uh, I read many books tries as a to child. make up for it on on the behalf of the parents. Uh, I mean, the the schools are uh, themselves now doubt the value of of literacy. Some of them, they, they the teachers don't know what they're supposed to be teaching, or or at least, or alternatively, a lot of them are more interested in the ideological. Uh, correctness of of the children than they are in their ability to read. Well, it's actually quite difficult to teach children to read. You have to pay attention to each child, and they they radically differ in their intellectual ability. And then you actually have to know how to teach someone to read. And that's actually complicated. You start with Hmm. the letters, you you get the letters pronounced, you get two-letter combinations and three-letter combinations, you automatize that. It's effortful. Ideological indoctrination, that's relatively straightforward. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I can't really speak about this because I never tried. Do you want to grow your YouTube channel? Do you want to earn more views, more subscribers, more watch time? And yes, I, I teach do. anybody to read. I had um, an interesting experience. In well, the Paris. data on that, the data on that are pretty clear. If you teach yes. children to read using phonetics, yes, which breaks it. You know, we have a phonetic alphabet. Because that makes things easier. You don't. Ha- you only have to remember twenty-six characters and variants on them instead of ten thousand. Say, you teach the phonemes and you get them to aggregate them. And once they get to the point where they can read phrases, they start to read on their own account because it becomes rewarding. And if you use other methods, they don't learn as well. So- well, well, one uh, one thing that I saw with my my patient, I was interested in their their level of education, which was catastrophically low. <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievably low. And I would give them something to read. And they would, you could see that they had difficulty doing it. Uh, I asked them to read it out loud. And then when they came to a long word, they would say, I don't know that word. I don't know that one. As if English were written in ideographs. In, in Chinese, yes. In yes. Chinese. Mandarin, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. They, they well, couldn't... Some teachers teach an ideogram method of, of verbal apprehension, which is absolutely counterproductive. That's how yeah. experts read, but that's not how you learn to read. Right. Yes. No, and, uh, and then I would say, uh, when they got through it, I would ask them, what did it mean? And they would say, I don't know. I was only reading it. Unless you can read phrases at a glance, you spend yeah. so much intellectual energy decoding the phonemes and the letters that you can't read for meaning. Yeah. And it, that's why it's not rewarding to begin with, right? You have to go through that slog of automatizing the subroutines and and... 
and that happens much more uh much See, that's much how i was I, I was house. I, I i would read but i couldn't retain and and i don't know if it was because of my add or whatever it was but i would find that i would read a page flip the page and as i'm reading the next page i would wander off and i would i would have to snap back flip back over read the page again until i was able to get through three pages four pages without losing my concentration so even even now i mean uh, i'll read and i'll just my mind will just wander off so it's i have to like seriously focus on what it is that i'm reading it's exhausting souls yeah well i i just i thought what i found very strange was that there was no sense of outrage that we spend on average a hundred thousand dollars probably more on each pupil's education and about 20 percent of them come out functionally illiterate or barely literate the kind of people that i'm talking about who who couldn't read a phrase or uh, who had difficulty sounding it out and then at the end of it uh, didn't know what it meant now how is it possible to spend so much money and have these results and this has a catastrophic effect on their lives it's obvious that it must have, in any modern society it must have a catastrophic effect on their lives but nobody seemed to be interested or, 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 or saw it as a disaster. You'd think the faculties of education would be interested, and you'd think that by now Amen. they would have, say, say, assessed an immense variety of methods to teach children how to read, let's say, because I think pretty much everybody could agree that that would be good. You know, <laughs> that they would have tried out 200 different educational techniques, subjected them good. to stringent analysis, and that we would see an increase in the efficiency of treating of teaching children to read that would be in keeping with the increase in technological power that we've seen over the last 20 years. We should be teaching kids to read at a rate that's just beyond comprehension if the faculties of education were doing their jobs, which they're not. Quite the contrary. Mm -hmm. So, yes, that's a... And I was thinking, too, you know, this... One of the things I found really interesting working with people who were dispossessed was... You know, you might think, well, you don't want to impose these external norms on them. There's there's a form of colonialism that would be associated with that or or classism or something like that. And and I suppose that's part of the non-judgmental stance, but you can always just ask the people themselves. And what you find right away is they they want for themselves pretty much what the middle class person or the upper class person has. And I don't just mean material resources. They they'd rather be educated than not educated or at least they'd want that for their children. They'd rather have a relationship if they could figure out how to conceive of it that was stable and loving, all of these things that you know you could regard as arbitrary. Um, a child would rather have a father and a mother that were around. So they're, they're, we could derive norms for the direction of our social policies that could be derived from the populations that we're hypothetically trying to serve, but we don't seem to do that either. We can't even agree that all things considered, it would be better to foster, to reward the presence of two parent families. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, all, <laughs> all that I said in my books, I thought was 
common sense, actually. Everything was more or less common sense. It wasn't, there, it wasn't work of great reflection or anything like that. Um, it just seemed to me everything was obvious. Um, and yet, um, and well, yet maybe it, it takes maybe it takes exposure to twenty thousand cataclysmic failures to make what's obvious salient. You know, because the problem with what's obvious is that it's invisible. You know, I, I found this out many times. So if I'm called on in an interview, for example, to defend marriage, I think, well, I don't actually know how to defend something that until 10 years ago was taken as a self-evident good. It's not like I have, or any of us for that matter, have a mass, massive array of arguments at hand to justify cultural norms. In the fact that they're norms means you don't have the arguments at hand. They're, they're so self-evident that they're not buttressed by a differentiated description. Yeah. Well, I, you see, uh, I, I, once, I used to write for a left-wing magazine as well as The Spectator, which is conservative, called The New Statesman. I mean, it's not far left. It's um, you know, moderately left. And I used to go for lunch there. Uh, sometimes, and we would have a discussion. And I met a, a, a very distinguished BBC broadcaster in the days when the BBC actually uh, was not terrible. And, um, and he said he'd read me. And uh, then he said, I, I wanted to meet you because I wanted to ask you. I said, uh, he said, uh, do you make it up? Do you and make I it up? I'll make it up. So I said, well, I'm very flattered that you think I could make it up, but uh, I don't make it up. On the contrary, I, I, I uh, tone it down. And, of course, I do disguise it for, to, you know, so that people are not recognisable, but, but in essence, everything is true, and actually things are much worse than I describe. Well, the thing is, th things in a bad situation, things are so bad that... It's both inconceivable and incommunicable to the people that it's happening to and to anyone else. Like, I've been in families that were dysfunctional for multiple generations. And what I found was that in some situations, you dig and you get to a lie and you'd think, God, I finally got to the fundamental lie. And then you'd find that there was an, a lie underneath that that was even bigger. And then if you dug through that, you'd find another catastrophe that was even more cataclysmic. And it just never came to an end. You, you can't communicate. What did you say in one of your books? I think it was, you quoted Tolstoy. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Yes. Mm. Right, so there's this specificity of misery that's complex beyond belief and, and densely layered. And so I know that reading your accounts, which are you know hair-raising and heart-rending, uh, that's nowhere near as bad as the actual situation. Yes, yeah. Well, I used to go into the hospital thinking I'd heard everything. I've heard everything. They can't, they can't surprise me. But they always could surprise me. They, they, there was a kind of uh, creativity about about the miseries that people inflicted on each other. Without, I mean, what what was distressing to me about the misery that I saw 
is that it was not actually in, there wasn't a government inflicting it not certainly not direct it was it was not like the misery of shall we say mass deportation or uh, you know civil war or anything like that mm-hmm. But in a way, that made it, because I, I used to have, not exactly a hobby, but I used to have a taste for going to dangerous countries and at places where there was civil war, where everything had broken down. And in a way, I found it less distressing than the kind of breakdown that I was, uh, that I was seeing around me in England, because it was, in a way, it was unforced. It... Uh, Right. Well, let me ask you about that then for a sec. Um, I mean, you're making two arguments. You were making two arguments just then, and I think this happens regularly, is that there is an underclass, so three arguments. There is an underclass that has a multi-generational component. Um, Things are really, really bad in that class for all sorts of complex ideas reasons, many of which are philosophical, let's say, or ethical or moral. Mm. And it's worse than it was. And I guess of the three of those, the one I find least convincing, let's say, or I'm able to accept with less certainty, is the idea that things are actually worse. I mean, people, you know, if you go back to 1820s, and this is maybe where your experience in poor places in developing worlds might be useful. If you go back to 1840 or thereabouts, the typical person in the Western world lived on about a buck 90 a day in today's dollars. So below the UN poverty level, life was bloody brutal for people. And, you know, so maybe things are worse now in the lower class with regards to familial structure than they were for a brief period after the Second World War. But... It isn't obvious to me that they're necessarily worse by historical standards. Well, I, I mean, it's yeah, it's always a question of uh, when you say something is worse. There's always the question of what you're comparing it. Well, to. The, yes. So I mean, you know, we could compare it with 3000 BC or or uh, or 1100 or whatever. Um, I the things that uh, it's incontestable that we are vastly better. Off physically, that that's incontestable. And um, uh, I mean, when my fa- my father was born in the East End of London, and in his borough, the um, when he was born, which is 1909, the infant mortality rate was, if I remember rightly, 124 per thousand, which means that uh, an eighth of children died before their first birthday. And in 18th century London, uh, 50% of children died before they were five. And there was, you know, poverty and filth and epidemic disease and every kind of... So, but I don't think that that's the kind of standard of comparison we, we should use. And if we take something like crime, um, violent crime, I think the evidence is that it has increased enormously in a country like Britain uh, since 1900, uh, when, of course, real mm, the, mm, there was absolutely terrible poverty by our standards today, the kind of poverty that nobody suffers today in any, in any Western society. And I was very struck by, um, by the story of um, Jack the Ripper, 
there are very instructive things which some people haven't noticed, which was that in Whitechapel, which was regarded as the worst part of London in the 1880s, and I mean, the poverty was just, again, inconceivable to us now. When a body was found, people ran off to find a policeman, and they found a policeman. And the policeman was armed with a bullseye lamp. He had a truncheon which he was supposed to draw only in extremis, and he had a whistle. And that was how he was armed. And he went around Whitechapel one by one, not, not in pairs or not in groups, but with one. So in Whitechapel today, you wouldn't get a policeman doing that. So I'm, I'm, I am confused about that to some degree because, you know, there, Steven Pinker, for example, I mean, he makes a pretty strong case that overall your probability of um, being murdered, for example, has against a time frame issue has declined. Well, it depends. Well, yes, what you're starting, where yeah. you're starting with. If you so, I, I think the more I think the more powerful argument is not necessarily so much that things have. Tell me what you think about this. I. It could easily be that there's a degeneration of moral standards, let's say, that leads to a higher probability of um, dispossession, and that you see that in the uh, in the in the in the class that's that's dropped out of society, and that is a consequence of what would you say a, a failure a failure to abide by the same standards that might motivate middle class prosperity and maybe the expectations for that class have 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 transformed themselves over a 20-year period but it isn't obvious to me necessarily that that's associated with an increase in in criminality overall well i again i think that well, certainly in britain it's perfectly clear that things like burglary and assault have increased enormously. I mean, they're not incre they're not increasing further, and they might now be decreasing, but they've increased enormously by comparison with with uh, the fairly recent past. I'm not talking about 18th century uh, London when you couldn't go anywhere without meeting a footpad or anything like that. If I'm, I mean, this is slightly. Uh, uh, slightly altering the subject a little. I'm, I personally am not terribly keen on the idea of the underclass because I don't... I, this suggests that it's a bit like um, Marx's lumpen proletariat, if you like. Uh, this is 5% of the population or whatever percentage of the population that is very uh, separate from the rest of the population. Unfortunately, uh, it, this was one of the points in my some of my books anyway, uh, the cultural uh, influence is going from the, is flowing from the bottom now upwards rather than what used to be the case from, from uh, middle classes or upper classes and middle classes downwards so that aspiration was uh, to move upwards but now there seems to be a cultural um, uh, a desire for cultural um, decline or, or um, dissent, it seems to me. 
Yeah, you make that case with the upper class mimicry of, of lower class, let's say lower economic class styles and that, and that sort of thing. Which is a form of uh, Marie Antoinetteism, mm -hmm. because of course they hang on to their economic uh, advantages. Right, right, right. Well, then they get the advantages of being dispossessed and the advantages of being rich. Um, let me ask you, we're, we're going to have to draw to a close here relatively quickly, unfortunately. Um, what Are there other people writing in the same vein as you? And that's one question. The other question is, what kind, what has been the consequence for you of your writing and your popularization of these ideas. I'd also like to know what sort of audience you're reaching. Your your most successful book, let's say, if you consider success popularity, was Life at the Bottom, correct? That's 2001. Yes. Yes. And th that one, I think it's fair to say that that one brought you to wide public attention by writer standards, yeah. by nonfiction writer standards, let's say. Um, What's been the consequence? What kind of criticisms have you faced and, and how have you responded to them? What's been the consequence of that for you as well? Yeah, well, the first thing is I don't think many people are writing in my vein. There was a, a, a journalist, a left-wing journalist called Nick Davis who wrote about this and he admitted the phenomena. So he didn't deny the phenomena. His analysis of the causes of it was different. But, I, but Nick Davis? Nick Davis, yes. What did he write? Yeah, I've forgotten the title. Okay, I'll look it up. I'll look it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. I he mean, uh, and I didn't, of course, I didn't agree with his analysis of the causes, but he did admit that the phenomena were there, which, mm -hmm. and, or, and we are very reluctant to admit that the phenomena are there. And if they are admitted, they're regarded as amusing. There was a very interesting... Uh, a video made about the Toki, it was called the Toki family in um, in Holland. And this was a sort of underclass family which was drinking and taking drugs and it was making the lives of the neighbours terrible and they were, I mean, I don't like to use the word degenerates, but that's the word that comes to mind. And uh, finally, they, they managed something which is very difficult in Holland, they were evicted from where they were living. And uh, this is almost an, an impossible achievement in Holland. But anyway, they went off in their white van and their consequence was that they were going on holiday to, uh, their punishment for their behavior was going on holiday to Spain in a white van. And uh, some producer made a little, um, video of them uh, singing that they were going on holiday to Spain in, in the, and you see them drinking and uh, you know just as my they were just like my patients and what it was quite clear to me was that they were being exhibited as amusing to the middle classes of Holland it was just a joke but these people were not a joke. They were, they'd been very violent to their neighbours. They'd made their li the lives of uh, their neighbours hell. And what we saw was the metropolitan middle classes just turning them into a joke, as if their lives and the lives of the people around them were not to be taken seriously. 
so that I think is, I mean, uh, that I think is the attitude of, of the kind of people who uh, have no contact with this world, as I would have had no contact with the world, with this world, if I, if I hadn't done the work I, I did. As to consequences for yeah, they're me, worried about selfishness. They're worried about their emotions, what makes them feel good. Um, and <clears throat> we're getting to a point. It seems that that's what's more important than anything else is is making sure that I feel good, and that's paramount over life's mor- you know life's morality. Well, there haven't really been any. I haven't been viciously attacked. Um, Why not? I think, well, first of all, it helps to be a doctor. Uh, Secondly... Right, well, you have some credibility, too, because you're, you know, you're actually working directly. Well, that that was, that, I think, was it. So this this was not, this was, uh, this, my ideas weren't just born out of some kind of theoretical uh, superstructure. So for all your flaws, you're you're genuinely in the trenches and that comes across you know that comes across immediately just the sheer number of people that i mean it's you saw how many people who had tried to commit suicide well but i think it was ten thousand ten and fifteen thousand right so that's that's such an inconceivable number that it it sort of i would imagine it would sort of leave critics aghast it's like well i've never talked to three people like that and you've talked to fifteen thousand that's that's actually quite a difference so the best way of dealing with that is to ignore it. <laughs> you know, so, I, I mean, you say I'm well-known. I don't think I'm well-known. I mean, uh, it's true that my book has... I don't know how many, I don't know how many my book has uh, sold. I was very surprised to discover that it had sold 13,000 in the Netherlands, and I was surprised because actually what I was describing was England, and I couldn't see how that could interest... A Dutch audience, but many people have um, have said, "Well, I have observed this." Many people who are in the trenches, as it were, uh, and one of the things that really pleased me—I mean, this was possibly the most pleasing thing to me—was that, I, I, oddly enough, my the books have sold quite well in Brazil, of all countries. I mean, mm. I never, it never occurred to me that they might sell the in suicide Brazil. Rate is, and is I gave a Brazil. lecture in Sao Paulo. And people came up afterwards. They wanted the book signed. And there were a couple among them who said, we are fro- we were born in the favelas of, of, of Sao Paulo, which actually are not the worst in Brazil, but, but still pretty bad. And it said, we recognized all that you said. All that you said about England we saw in the favelas. So let's let's go through what what you saw and and then maybe we could talk about what you've seen and what you think might be effective amelioration. So you see um, fragmented intimate relationships. Is that is that the most salient feature is the impermanence of intimate relationships? I you know yes I would say so because I think without uh, without better relationships, it's very difficult to see how large numbers of people can escape this world. Hmm. Okay, and so out of that, because the, the relationships, the sexual relationships, aren't bound by mutual long-term support, love, 
contractual obligations and all right. of that, that spins into higher levels of male violence and also to predation on vulnerable females by psychopathic and aggressive males. Yes, although the, I wouldn't say that the, the women are just passive uh, victims. They're not just passive victims. I mean, they are victims, but they're not passive victims. I mean, and, and I guess I was sorry. I was thinking that they're they're easier prey. Yeah. With multiple children, they're not. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're easier pickings. That's that's what yeah. I mean. And, and yeah, I, that's that, that's right. Yes. They right. Are, yeah. So the fragmentation. So if you have a, a fragmented couple of relationships, and and you're a woman, you end up with children. You're no longer 20 and single. You're 28 or 35. You have two children. Um, your your the array of high quality men that you have to choose from is going to decrease substantially yes it was never very great to begin with. right 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 okay so then we add to that um i studied alcohol for years and its effects on violence and you can basically say that if people didn't get drunk half the violence in the world would instantly disappear so rape murder um familial abuse the contribution of alcoholism is stunningly high stunningly high so maybe that's the third factor that plays in it is that reasonable well it's certainly a, it's unmistakably uh, a, a part of it yes yeah so, say 50 percent of murderers are drunk when they kill and 50 percent of victims are intoxicated when they die yeah so it's 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 a major and it's the only drug it's the only drug that has that magnitude of an effect on violent behavior. So um, then low, low educational attainment. Yes, the legality of it isn't even in question. Very important. And, uh, and interestingly, the state does very little to try to address it or try to, to make things better. Okay. And then, and then beliefs, what, what do you think are the key beliefs that that characterize the phenomenon that you saw? Uh, well, there's a, there's now certainly a sense of entitlement, the sense of it's wrong for anyone to judge. Uh, people have internalized that, so not only do they not judge others, but they don't judge themselves, and it's not right for anybody to judge them. So, so that's an abandonment of judgment or even a demonization of it when it's judgment. a crucial thing that you need to separate your from your to survive. While at the same time, because it's existentially impossible not to make judgments, they are making judgments, but they don't—they are not—they they don't accept that they're making judgments. That they are making judgments. Um, attitude towards the future. What's the attitude? Uh, Bleak. I think, uh, shall we say, it's not thought about very deeply. Right. Okay. So that's the first thing is that it doesn't come up much. Yes. Um, what I've noticed is is that there there's no implicit sense that the future is something that could be altered for the for the better by better. changes of behavior currently. Yes. Yeah. Which is uh, <laughs> there's an element of truth in that in the economic aspect because. Then, you know, they're not going to get good jobs, even if they behave responsibly and so on, they're not going to get good jobs. However, their lives will be better uh, if they behave responsibly. 
But another thing that uh, I would, I, I mean, this is very speculative, but I thought that um, lots of people have become uh, stars in their own soap opera, and they prefer a a a dramatic life, a life full of incident to a life that would be actually very flat if they if they did the kind of things that you and I would suggest their lives might be very flat because they would not be well off uh, they would still be struggling economically and so on and their lives would be very very dull well that's Dostoevsky's famous criticism of socialist utopia right people are fundamentally unable to deal with uh, satiated dullness. They'll, yes. they'll break it, they'll fragment it just so that something dramatic and exciting happens. And there's definitely truth in that. And I think that's a testament to some degree to the adventurousness of the human spirit, even though it's something that can, well, manifest it in the ways that you described. Yeah, well, I think... It's I mean, not I, boring. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I've fled... I, I mean, I can't say that I haven't... Um, I haven't liked chasing sensation myself because I, when I was younger, I used to like danger of a certain kind. I used to like going to countries which were dangerous. I crossed Africa by public transport in days when it was impossible to communicate with anyone. There were no mobile phones or anything, so I was incommunicado for months at a time. Well, and you did work in prisons as a psychiatrist. Yeah, well, I, I didn't, I never felt really that was very dangerous, but I, um, you know, countries where there's tell it like it is, man. We're not dangerous so about it. Are dangerous, and I liked it. Uh, <laughs> but I always felt, I suppose, maybe falsely, that there was some higher purpose. It wasn't just a liking for danger. It, there was some kind of purpose behind it all. Well, I mean, there I, is some there is some utility in seeking out adventure and and, yeah. and strife if that's integrated into a. Uh, um, functional and productive, generous, honest life, that's better. It's better. So um, obviously in and of itself, it can become a problem. But um, so how did you handle this emotionally? Which? Um... Well, the endless onslaught of misery amongst your, amongst your clientele. Well, I mean, one way of uh, dealing with it, of course, was writing about it. Because I, I've, what I found is that when you write about an experience, it, even an, an unpleasant experience, it distances you from that experience. So you, you not only having the experience, you're observing having the experience. I was once arrested in uh, Albania, and uh, and mildly, if you say, mildly beaten with a truncheon by a, by a policeman. And actually, as he was hitting me, I, I wasn't thinking this is painful. I was thinking, how am I going to describe this subsequently? <laughs> now, so that being able to describe it or having the intention of describing it actually distances yourself in a good way, I think, from, from your experience. Well, you draw the conclusions that way. And I mean, you're, the purpose of your memory in some sense is to draw the appropriate conclusions from your experience to guide you into the future and so yes. um, 
uh, I have a series of writing exercises online at a place called selfauthoring.com that steps people through writing a biography. Um, and it highlights experiences that were emotionally extreme. Um, and because there is plenty of evidence that writing them out, they have to be somewhat distant from you, you know. Yeah, if you can't do it the next day. Yes, exactly, because you're just re-traumatizing yourself in some sense. But there, the evidence is quite strong, I would say, that doing that, well, you're transforming the emotion into words and replacing, yeah. in some sense, the emotion by the words. You're making sense of it. Um, yeah. There was a very interesting experience. I had an interesting experience with that in that regard in the prison. We had a writer who would come in and teach writing creative writing, if you like, to interested prisoners. And they were, of course, a selected group and so on. And the writer, told, uh, he came to me because, of course, the, the, uh, there wasn't really any evidence that he was doing any good because, of course, that such evidence would be almost impossible to, to gather. Right. But And so, of course, the, the prison authorities are constantly trying to cut down costs, so they wanted to get rid of them. So he wanted me to write in his uh, favour, which I did, which, of course, sealed his fate. But, um, <laughs> but, but anyway, uh, he told me something very interesting. All the people who wrote... Uh, wrote autobiographically, as you would expect. And they would... F All right, so I'm going to wrap this up here. Um, it's a lengthy discussion, uh, and I appreciate you guys sitting through it with me. Um, big topics, and again, these guys are, are, are point, you know, spot on for the most part. Uh it just again it comes down to our emotions our daily emotions our daily decisions based upon those emotions understanding where we're at and accepting that right accepting the fact that we're the cause of our own destruction and i don't want to be in that destruction anymore i want different i want things to be different and you're going to have to make some tough choices and you're going to have to eliminate some tough ties. But at the end of the day, I guess I guess being a prisoner that it's it's easier because you're forced into it. Right? Those ties are automatically cut and and you're just forced to deal with it versus you having to make a decision and finalize that decision and move forward. It's 10 times tougher. So but it has to be done if you want any semblance of life, um, happiness, joy for self. Um, you just have to do it. So, again, thank you. Man, all the love that I'm getting, man, I love it. Um, keep it coming. Keep keep the joint live. Um, I'm going to keep bringing you stuff like this. Education, knowledge, truth, um, discussions that we can discuss. And all in making ourselves better to bring ourselves together so we can understand one another. We have enough education to understand what the next human being is trying to relate to us. And we have enough education to be able to articulate what we want to say in a fashion that isn't with swear words or disrespect or lined with, you know, uh, ego. So until the next time, um, 
that's it, man. Uh, please subscribe, like, share. Um, I have a merchandise site that you can go. You can check out all the merchandise. Um, if you if you want something specialized, reach out to me, and we'll talk about what it is that you want. And if you need help, reach out to me. If you know somebody that needs help, that um, they're just not open to talking to just anybody, you know, reach out to me. Let's see if we can reach this person. So until then, you know, uh, thank you once again. I love you guys. Peace. Be safe. Be your best self, man. And I'm out this bitch.